invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. If you were to ask me what my deepest concern for, for professing Christians today was, I think it would be that I fear how many people actually understand that the Christian life is a call to die. So often what I hear from people when they give a call to respond to the gospel, it's something like this. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Have you heard some form or fashion of that? Like often in these situations, especially if you turn on your TV and you're watching a lot of the preachers on the TV, uh, sometimes I don't even hear the word repentance. I don't hear the word die to yourself. And sometimes I don't even hear the word sin. Isn't, isn't that where it starts with the fact that we're sinners, which is why we need to be saved? Like, I mean, let, let's first acknowledge, does, in a sense, Jesus have a wonderful plan for our lives? Yes. But if you were to tell somebody, the average person, God has a wonderful plan for your life, what do you think they're thinking about? Are they thinking about eternity, which is the great plan? Or are they thinking about tomorrow? Like, all right, am I going to get my job back tomorrow? Am I going to get uh, you know, a new car that I need because mine just broke down? Like, and we can just mix it up. And, like, we don't understand. I, I'm afraid. I, let, me, let me rephrase that. I'm afraid to think of how many people in the church on Sunday mornings have no idea what it means to surrender your life to Christ. And this morning, this is what we're talking about. A Christian life is a call to die. The Christian life is a call to die. Jesus said it himself in Luke 9, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That sounds a lot different, doesn't it, than Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Like the call to follow Jesus is a call of surrender. That's why we say in baptisms, like, Buried in the likeness of his death. We're dying to our old way of living. We, we have to die. Death is painful. It's painful to realize that we fall short of God's glory. And we need to remember that that is what the Christian life is called to do. And, and the reason why we struggle so much of that is because we think we have wonderful plans for our own lives. But can we just acknowledge that our plans are usually garbage? <laughs> I've been waiting 34 years planning for Notre Dame to win a championship in football, and they still have not yet done it. That's a terrible plan, right? I, I was planning to not be so fragile as I got older, like a month ago. I kid you not, three minutes into playing pickleball, and I pulled my calf. <laughs> That's a terrible plan, right? That's, those are man-centered plans. The plan that God has for us is one to die and surely, as we have gone through Acts, we understand that Paul knew that. Paul was willing to give it up for the glory of God. We all need to understand that apart from Christ, we are an absolute mess. And our plans for ourselves usually only lead us to sabotage. Let's remind ourselves what, what Paul said in Acts 20, verses, verse 24. But I do not count, account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Not only was Paul willing to lay down his life, he literally lost his life for the sake of Christ. He understood that when he when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, he was calling him to die. And so before we jump into this text to talk about this challenging topic, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the reminder this morning that you are enough. You have paid the price and taken care of our greatest problem, our sin. You have made us right. For those who have placed their faith in you, repented of their sin, God, you have made us right with you. But Lord, remind us this morning that this Christian life is not a, a life that's called to, to live in comfort, to live in ease. Rather, it is a call to die. And Lord, we need your grace and your mercy and your help, Lord, because if I'm honest, I am the most selfish person I know. And God, I need your spirit to move in me so that I am willing to die daily, take up my cross daily, follow you daily, God. And I am tempted to put my plans in the place of yours. And so, Lord, help us this morning, Lord, that we would be willing to die. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we have a large text this morning. We're not, usually I like to sit, or I like to, I like to go through it all, but we're going to take this in chunks. And the call to die to ourselves, this is not just, I'm not just specifically speaking of physically dying, but there are certain areas in our life that we are called to die to, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's start by looking at verse 1 in chapter 21 of Acts. And when he had parted from them, this is Paul, and his people, and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing at Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When he heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So here's the the first call I want to talk about this morning. The Christian life is a call to die to your comforts. The Christian life is a call to die to your comforts. Notice it in verse 1 in the ESV. It says, we and when we had parted. Now the literal translation, uh, CSB translated this way, it, it literally means we tore ourselves away. Like there was this peeling away. Like you ever, like you have family that lives out of town. You ever, you ever go visit them and you're just like peeling yourself away. It's like this painful, I remember when we lived away from family and it was just like this painful peel. There's just these tears for the first hour driving back home. Like that's this, this feel, like there's this, there's this sacrifice that is taking place. I mean, and that's, that's the realization that Paul had, like, his call to follow Christ led him to die to the comforts of staying with the people that he loved, staying with the people that brought him comfort. That's the reality of what it means to follow Christ sometimes. He calls us to do those things. And we see here that they traveled to several different locations covering hundreds of miles. And in verse 4, it says that through the Spirit, these Disciples that he was with were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Do you see a problem with this? Do you remember like that in chapter 20, Paul was saying something different about what the Spirit was telling him. Like P Paul was convinced that the Spirit was telling him he needed to go, but yet there's this different message from these other disciples. Let me just remind you of, the, of what Jesus, what the Lord said about Paul in Acts chapter 9. You can just uh, stay where you're at and I'll read it for you. Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So, Paul, in his mind, doesn't have a choice on whether or not he goes to Jerusalem. This is the call of God on his life. Last week in chapter 20, verses 22 and 23, why don't you look at that with me real quick. Uh, just maybe a page away, maybe on the same page. It says this, and, and now behold, this is Paul speaking, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. He's, he's pressed by the Spirit to do this. He, he, this is what the Lord is calling him to do. Not knowing what will happen to me there. I mean, how, how about that? Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but all I do know is that the Spirit is testifying to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. So Paul is being led to suffer, but yet the, the disciples here, they're telling him something different. They're saying, Paul, you need to get away from Jerusalem. You need to stay away from Jerusalem. So I want you to hold that thought because this is not the last time we're going to see people trying to keep Paul from doing what he believes the Lord is calling him to do. And so they continue on with their travels. 
Notice before they leave, though, like they say, they have to say farewell. They, they go to the beach. I mean, this is, this is sometimes what happens when we take on the call of God. I remember when in 2018 when our hearts were being stirred to plant a church in Elkhart County. Uh, we were in a place that we loved. We loved living in Granger. We loved all the stores that were around Granger. We loved Chick-fil-A unapologetically. Uh, Costco is there. Um, but, like, the main thing is we loved the people of Gospel City. Like, they meant everything to us. And we knew that if we took the call, accepted the call to plant a church, there would be this sort of death. Yeah, you might say it's only 35 minutes away, but, but we all know when you step out of regular fellowship with other believers, like, it's just not the same. And I haven't seen many of those brothers and sisters in years, in a couple years. And, and it's hard. Like, that's a, that's a comfort that's no longer there. But Jesus is worth it, amen? He's worthy of it. And so they, they kneel and they pray together on the beach and they bid each other farewell, probably with tears, as we saw in chapter 20. And then notice that they meet up with Philip. You guys remember who Philip is, the evangelist? Uh, we saw him back in chapter 6. He was a, a deacon of the church that was caring for the Hellenistic, uh, the Hellenistic widows, if you remember. Like they were collecting things to give to those in need, to the widows, and they were being neglected. He was one of the ones that helped with that. And if you remember, the Spirit led him uh, to, to preach in Samaria, and he met the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember that guy? Who was just trying to figure out what he was reading. He was reading about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Like, who is this? And the Spirit leads Philip up, and he leads him to Christ, and probably spreads the gospel further through the life of this eunuch. Uh, notice uh, the interesting fact about Philip, first of all, like from Chapter 6 until now, 20 years has taken place. And the interesting fact about Philip is that he was actually chased out of Jerusalem because of the persecution that was breaking out, led by no other than Paul. What must that brother have been thinking when here, here comes Paul? And isn't God sweet in that? You can turn enemies into friends, into family. Notice that James had these four daughters who were prophesying, no doubt probably saying some things to Paul about what he was going to suffer. I think it's worth noting and talking a little bit briefly about the role of women in the church. Now, we are a complementarian church. What does that mean? Uh, we believe that men and women are equal in value. Amen? Man is not more valuable than a woman. A woman is not more valuable than man. However, like we have been given distinct roles. So we as a church hold to the to the believe that the role of pastor is to be given to man alone that's where we stand however that doesn't take away the importance of women in the church like nobody's stopping these women from prophesying they played a valuable role in the church and women still today play a very valuable role in the church now these women aren't the only ones who are prophesying there's also this character this guy named agabus and if you're familiar with Acts, we read about him in Acts 11, verse 28, where he was proclaiming a worldwide famine. And this is actually another reason why Paul is headed to Jerusalem. If you remember, they were, they were collecting offerings for him to give to the Jerusalem church who was still struggling from this famine that had taken place. Now, can, you, can you imagine being an agabus, though? Like all these prophecies, it's all bad news. 
Imagine being at church and Agabus comes your way and says, hey, Ben, man, I, I got a word from the Lord for you today. <laughs> but not today, Agabus. Come on, it's going well. And so, once again, he's told that he's going to suffer for going to Jerusalem. Now, notice then, once again, the Christians around who heard, I'm assuming they had heard these prophecies that we're giving to Paul, are trying to persuade him away again to going to Jerusalem. Now, Agabus isn't saying, hey, Paul, he's not like predicting, hey, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to suffer. He's saying, hey, you're going to suffer. And he takes his, his rope and he ties his own hands, his own feet. He's like, whoever owns this, this is what's going to happen to him. He, he's declaring what's going to happen. He's not saying, if you do this, it is going to happen. He was informing them of the reality of his future. So that brings us back to what we were talking about earlier. How can, on the one hand, the Spirit be telling believers, telling disciples that, hey, Paul's going to suffer, but like, tell him, try to persuade him not to go. And then, on the other hand, the Spirit telling Paul, hey, you're going to suffer. You need to go. Like, this, is, this is what your future is. Well, I think the, the truth lies in the fact that Sometimes as believers, we can get the same facts and we get the same truth but come to different conclusions. See, I don't think the Spirit was telling these disciples, hey, you need to persuade. Paul shouldn't go. I think they got the same facts. Jerusalem equals suffering for Paul. And so they were trying to get them to escape. But here's the reality for us. The call, the Christian life is a call to die to our comforts. Sometimes it's going to put us in precarious positions where we are called to suffer and lay our comforts down. Look at verse 13. This is Paul's response to them. And I love that this verse is here. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Don't you, don't, are you like me, where you just kind of look at the, you look at Paul and you think like he's this hard-shelled guy, like he's just kind of a, like the good macho, like I, I'm not into macho-ness per se, but like he's like this, like this Christian who's like, you know, ready to run through a wall and no one's going to stop him from doing what the Lord wants him to do, not even man, like, like he almost doesn't care about other people, and, he, and here you see the soft heart of Paul. Paul's, Paul's not just like, I don't care about these people. The only thing I care about is Jesus. We see this softness to him where he, he, he understands what he's going to, and he's sad about it, and he's like, please don't remind me of everything I already know. Yes, this is heartbreaking, but I'm willing to do this because Jesus is worth it. Eventually, they realize that no matter what they say, the only thing they can do is entrust Paul to the Lord. And so Paul and his companions who go with him make it to Jerusalem. Paul walked the walk, didn't he? He could have stayed and encouraged the believers, and no one would have thought differently of him. He could have helped build the church there. Like They needed a shepherd still. They'd, they still needed leadership here. He could have done that, but instead of be staying at a place that was comfortable to him, he was willing to sacrifice all of the comforts of life the comfort of his own bed, the comfort of his own house in order to advance the gospel to his former brothers and sisters, the, the Jews. And it just begs us to ask the question, are you willing 
to give up your comforts. There will be times where you need to give up time to care for those who are hurting. There may be times where God is calling you to give up a greater amount of your treasure than you're comfortable with in order to encourage and advance the gospel. God may, may, may have equipped you in such a way that leads you to use your talents for his glory that means a sacrifice for you. Are you willing to do that? The Christian life is a call to die to your comforts. Look at verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they had heard it, they glorified God, and they will stop there. Here's the next thing. The Christian life is also a call to die to your glory. It's a call to die to your praise. It's a call to die to you having to receive the credit for something that you are a part of. Here's what we see happening here. Paul meets up with James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. It's been five years since they have met. And he had elders present, uh, like, had elders with him. And, and Paul is just proclaiming to him everything that had happened in the work of his ministry to the Gentiles. But notice, who, who, who was he declaring as the one who did the works? Look, look at it again. Verse 19. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that he, is that what it says, that he had done? Who was the one that was doing the work? It was the things that God had done among them. You see, Paul here isn't looking to take the credit. He knows where the credit belongs. He remembers who he was apart from Christ. It was a miracle that Paul was here serving the Lord when it was 20-some years ago when he was persecuting Christians. He was approving the death of Stephen, holding the robes of those who were casting the stones on him. And who knows how many other deaths that he was a part of. And on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and Paul is radically transformed. And so he knows that it wasn't by works of righteousness which he had done that it saved him, but according to God's mercy. It was because of the, the life, the perfect life and the death of Jesus that Paul was doing the things that he was doing. The work of the ministry that Paul did was only by God's grace. With the Christian life comes a call to die to our own glory. When God uses us for great works, the only response that we have is to God be the glory. Scripture is clear about this. Let me read you what Ephesians 2.10 says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Who made us? God made us. He created us. We're his workmanship. We're his craft. He's the one that formed us. And he created us in Christ Jesus for a specific purpose, to perform good works. And by the way, which God prepared beforehand. God is the one who prepared these good works beforehand that we should walk in them. So 
So when we're doing good works, when we're displaying godly character, when we're doing our jobs to the glory of God, when we're not looking to earn any credit for, when we're reflecting all the glory back to God, the only reason why we're doing that is because of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? I mean, as a pastor, it's a big challenge. I mean, think about it. When I, when I screw up and, I, and things start to fall apart, I get to blame for it, right? rightly so. But if things are going well and people are growing in Christ, it's all to the glory of God. It's not me. And the, the same is true for you. Have you found favor in your work where you are displaying godly character in a hostile world, in hostile environments? Are you going and you're giving your best and you're being respectful to people, even if you have to disagree, even if you have to say some hard things, you're doing it in a way that brings honor to God because the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and you are giving control to the Holy Spirit. And then when that happens and people come praise you, the only glory goes to God because it's not about you. Amen? Like it, it should be something that totally doesn't go together. Pride and believers in Christ. Paul said it best in Genesis or Galatians 6:14. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul knew that the glory belonged to God. You remember what happened to him? At, what happens to us at conversion? We die to ourselves, right? We're a new creation in Christ Jesus. I mean, here's the fascinating thing as believers that should blow our minds on a regular basis. Think about, first of all, the sins that you've committed this week. The impatience while driving, while parenting, while being a spouse, while working. Think of the bad attitude you've had this week. And now think about this, believer. If you have truly repented of your sin and placed your faith in Christ, when God looks at you, he sees his son. Who the son sets free is free indeed. Is that not amazing? We're no longer defined by our past. We're defined by Christ's past, what he did for us on the cross. That's what defines us now. That's amazing. He paid the price on the cross for our sin that we may be made right. He's made us into a new creation. He's, he's laid out good works for us because we're his workmanship that we should walk in these things. And so when we're walking in them, we're only doing what the Spirit is doing through us. And so he gets all the glory. So believer, let me ask you, how are you doing with your pride? How do you respond when somebody else gets the credit that you deserve or you think you deserve? How do you respond when you're being treated unfairly? It's not to say that we don't speak up, right? Can we just understand that? The, the key is not just to be silent all the time. There are times to be silent. There are also times to speak up in a way that glorifies Christ because we're speaking the truth in love. So different from the world. The call, the Christian life is a call to die to our own glory. Look at the second half of verse 20. And they said to him, so that's the elders and James, 
You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zeal, all zealous for the law. So Paul, do you think he would have known what zealousness for the law would look like? This is exactly what he was. No love, true love for God, but zealous for the law. He knew. He understood. He remembers what he was like. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Here's the third thing that we are called to die to. The Christian life is a call to die to your preferences. It's a call to die to your preferences. So as I mentioned, James and the elders are warning them about the zealousness of these thousands and thousands, probably 40 to 50,000 that they're mentioning here, just tons of people who are zealous for the law. And, and notice that uh, they're spreading lies and they're spreading rumors about isn't, isn't that running rampant? Like, you don't know who is saying what anymore, and you can't really trust anybody because everybody seems to have an agenda. And, and no different here. They are spinning what Paul said. They, they said that Paul told the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Like, forget about him. Don't circumcise their children. Stay away from it. It's wrong. Don't follow any Jews, Jewish customs. Basically, they were accusing Paul of defaming the law, defaming the Torah that was given to Moses for, this, for the people of Israel, for, for God's chosen people. They are basically saying that Paul has just treated the law as if it's garbage and, and no more. That, that is not at all the way Paul treated it. Rather... Paul focused on Christ. What Paul preaches is that religion can't save. Circumcision won't make you right with Christ. Following the law, first of all, is impossible. But second of all, you can't do it to, to earn favor with God. He understood that you didn't have to go to the temple to meet with Jesus, that Jesus tore down the, the veil so that we could have a relationship with him. He wasn't speaking against those things, but rather he was recognizing that none of these Jewish customs will lead to salvation. He knew that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That was his focus. He wasn't, he wasn't diminishing those things. He was saying, like, Moses was there to prepare the way for Jesus. We don't worship Moses. We don't worship the law. We worship the lawgiver. And so what's the solution? Well, the solution is like they think he is completely against the law. That's not the case. So what can we do to show that he, is, he, he still supports the law? He still actually participates in Jewish customs. And so he has them do different things. I, these aren't things that were necessary 
in order to earn God's favor. And so these aren't, these aren't things that Paul would preference to do. He would, he would rather share about the freedom of Christ, and we don't have to do those things. But he's laying down his preferences in order to gain the ear of these believers, or these Jews, these unbelieving Jews. And so he goes through purification. He's got these four men who they're calling to shave and, and purify them as well, showing that he does observe the law. They're even at, he even, not only did he, he didn't, he didn't completely neglect the law, but he actually had the Gentiles follow a few things, like things that the Jews would have followed as well, like don't eat what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. These things weren't necessary for salvation and certainly they probably weren't preferential to Paul, but... He was willing to lay down his preferences in order to gain the ear of those that he spoke to. And I want you to notice here, because we, there's always extremes, right? Like we are such pendulum swingers here. Paul is not deciding like, hey, you know what? Let's go to the strip bar because I want to minister to the other guys who are going to the strip bar. Like, that's not a great idea. <laughs> You're exposing yourself to things that you should not be exposing yourself to. He's not like, hey, you know what? I'm going to get drunk so that I understand what it means to be a drunkard. I'm going to go hang out to them. He's not committing sins in the things that he's doing. Rather, he's looking for opportunities to lay down his preferences in order to meet him. We, we know his thoughts because we read it in Scripture. Keep a finger here and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. So go towards the end of the Bible. you got Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this letter to the church, and, and we're going to see his heart behind why he did what he did, why he laid down his preferences. There was a reason why he did what he did. He had an eternal perspective. He wasn't thinking about his own comfort. He wasn't thinking about what he wanted to do. He, was, he strictly wanted Christ to be glorified. 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. <clears throat> To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. What is he saying? Like, I'm come, put myself under the law, even though I'm not really under the law, I'm just doing it so that I can reach those who are under the law. A little bit confusing, but verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. So that's why he didn't go to the Gentiles and say, hey guys, we've got to build a temple here, and then we've got to have sacrifices, and then we need to, we need, you need to circumcise your, your children, you need, you need to, all the males need to be circumcised. Like he wasn't going through all those proclaiming this is what you need to do. Like he was becoming like those who weren't under the law. 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all. Here's the reason. For the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. This is a call to sacrifice. This is a call to deny ourselves. There are times where we may choose to do things that we wouldn't really want to do because it's all for the sake of the gospel. How many times do you go to the, the grocery store and you're like, all right, we need to go to aisle eight, we need to get this, 
and I'm going to put my head to the cart, and we're going to plow over anybody's in my way because I just want to get there and get out. I'm not going to Walmart because they always have one register open with 85 other registers closed. So I'm not going there. I just need to get in and get out. I'm going to go through the self-checkout because that means I don't have to talk to anybody because then I can get in my car quicker and I can get out of there. You ever have that mindset? I do. You have kids in sports, and you go, you go to them, and how many times you just get zoned out? And you're like, I don't want to talk to people. It's been a long day. I've been talking to people all day. I just want to focus on my kid. I just want to watch my kid play sports. Like, that's all I care about. And Nikki has to remind me sometimes, hey, Ben, like, there's no championships won today. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's only in junior high, and he probably will never play professional soccer. So if you keep acting like that, people will never come to your church again. <laughs> Like sometimes we have to die to what we would prefer to do so that we are mindful of the fact that, I mean, chances of you going to the store and sharing the gospel and somebody coming to Christ are maybe slim, maybe not. Chances of sharing the gospel with a parent at a, at a soccer game may come, it may not. But what if it does? Are we sensitive to lay down our preference in order to advance the kingdom? You know, there's already this sense of skepticism to Christ and the church. And I really think most of it comes to the fact that they're blind. Believers are blind to the gospel. They're blind to God. But there are times where people are skeptical to the church because the church isn't being the church. Because the church sometimes looks far more like the world than it does look like Christ. And some of it comes from the fact that we want our preferences we don't want to have to fight for things. We want people to believe the same things we do. And so instead of dying to the preference of winning an argument, man, may we be willing to have conversations and, and lean in and listen and, and come to the place where we understand why somebody thinks differently than us rather than just casting like everybody else does why a person falls a certain way they do. Listen, we must never compromise the truth. But may we have the approach that Paul did, that we understand everything we do is for the glory of Christ. The Christian life is a call to die to our preferences. Look at verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, so this is the, the uh, purification time frame, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Do you see the exaggeration there? Hey, you ever use that language? You always or you never. I say that probably too many times a day that I care to think about towards my kids. He is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Again, spreading rumors, this is not what he did. We'll get to that in a minute. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesians, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So here's the case. Like, I mean, I saw Paul with him out there. I see him in the temple now. There's Paul in the temple too. Surely Paul's the one that brought him in here. But can we just stop for a minute? Do you think Paul would go through the sacrifice of purification, of bringing these four men along, of going to them and, and doing everything they can to observe the law, 
And then meanwhile, while all these signs outside saying for Jews only, no non-Jewish people to come in, that that was like a a major no-no for the temple. Like this is visible for him to see. Do you think he's going to compromise his desire to win the ears of these people by bringing in a non-Jewish person into the temple? I think not. This is just rumors being spread because they hate Paul. They hate Jesus, and they hate the fact that Paul is speaking against what they find the most joy in, their own rules being followed. And so the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, verse 30. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, listen to this. So they're concerned about the way things are done in the in the temple, but once you get out the temple, you can do whatever you want to. Like, you see the hypocrisy in that? Like, like you got to follow the rules of the temple, but hey, you can kill somebody without a trial as long as you're not in the temple. Like, that, that's what's going on here. But this is the Christian life, is it not? We live in hostile territory. This home, this world is not our home. We should not be surprised by these things. So as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tri- tri- tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So, so Jerusalem was under Roman rule, and so this was a Roman official, and they had their eyes on the temple. One thing they could not stand was chaos. And so as soon as word of chaos came, you know that the Romans around are like, hey, we got to go. we got to take care of this right now. I mean, think about it. For Passover, there would be millions of people who gathered in Jerusalem for Passover so they, they need to get this thing under control and fast. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when he had saw the tri- tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So they're just pummeling him. Who knows what he's taken from here. And, and notice all the soldiers. I mean, a centurion was a leader of 100 men. That's where we get the word century. Century is how many years? 100 years. So there's multiple centurions which I am led to believe there are 200-plus people, soldiers, who are coming to rescue Paul from this mob. Verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done, so obviously they didn't know who Paul was. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, so probably all these rumors saying he's a threat to Roman government and all this stuff. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So they got to carry him. He can't walk anymore. They're coming after him. They're thrashing at him. they got to carry him because of the violence. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Here's the last point. The Christian life is a call to die to your freedom. The Christian life is a call to die to your freedom. Paul endures all these things. And this would be the last time that he was free. From this point on, he will be in captivity. He'll be in chains. He'll be imprisoned. He'll be under house arrest. Any letters he writes after this is written from a hand in chains. The prophecies have come to fruition. Now, I don't, I don't know what our world holds for us as believers All I do know is that it doesn't seem to be less hostile. 
It seems like the, you know, it's, it used to be cool to be affiliated with the church. And now the cool thing is to deconstruct your faith. It's, the cool thing is, is to be atheist or, or to claim not to believe in God at all. All the more, really what I think it could produce, though, is a harvest that is plentiful. Because haven't you tasted and seen that the world is empty? And so this pendulum swing of like casual Christianity to the point where like it's almost going to cost you now to stand up for Christ. Like the church, let's be mindful too, the church never shrinks. Do you know that? Church attendance may shrink, but those whom Jesus has rescued, he will carry to completion. The church will never shrink, never grow weary of that if the church attendance shrinks. The church never does. But are you willing, if it comes at a cost to you, are you willing to stand for Christ? If your work starts to go sideways with the way they start to do business and it's no longer honest and it's dishonest and they're deceiving people, are you going to be willing to stand up for Christ and possibly lose your job over because Jesus is worth it? Are you going to be willing to stand for, for life when everybody around you is standing for death? Are you going to be willing to stand up to other believers who are making a fool for the name of Christ in the way that they're handling their lives? When we come to Jesus, it is a call to die to ourselves. It is a call to die to our freedom. But here's the thing. Did Paul really lose his freedom? His earthly freedom may be taken away, but he knew where ultimate freedom came from. You see, brothers and sisters, whatever the world throws at us is not the worst thing about life. Whatever tragedies you face outside of yourself, that's not the worst thing that can happen to you. And some of you, if, if we got to hear your story, we'd probably hear some just horrible things that would make us weep. But do you know that your greatest problem has been taken care of? The greatest problem is our sin in each and every one of us. The desire to live for our own flesh and our own desires, that is what leads you astray, not the world around you, not people who are doing things to you. It's your own heart that leads you astray. And Jesus has paid the price. Jesus is fully God and fully man, a mystery that we can't fully understand. And he came and lived the perfect life that we could not live. Never messed up at one. He wasn't just a good man. Some people say Jesus was a good man. If Jesus was just a good man, then he was a liar. Because he claimed to be God. Jesus was God. Jesus is God. And he came and lived a perfect life. Not one mistake. Not one time raising his voice against his parents that he should not have done. Not one time speaking out of turn. Not one time doing what he should not have done. He was perfectly holy. Something we can't go a day without. That was Jesus' whole life. And then he died the death that you deserve so that everyone who repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ, as Bella proclaimed this morning, whoever does that genuinely will be rescued from their sin and have Christ's righteousness placed on your life. That's where we find true freedom. Come, take me in chains. You can take away my earthly freedom, but you can't take away the freedom that awaits me in glory. As we close, let me just remind us, the Christian life is a call to die to our comforts. 
It's a call to die to our glory, our preferences. Christian life is a call to die to our earthly freedom. May we be willing to do whatever is necessary in order that Christ may be proclaimed. Let me lead you, leave you with these action steps. If you want to go a little further this week, uh, I encourage you to take some time to memorize Galatians 6.14. This is what I read earlier. It says this, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I, I've just been forgetting, but also continually reminding myself of the things that Paul has said here, Acts 20, verse 34, and then you look at just the way he lived his life, like, just reminding myself, Ben, I have nothing to boast in. Like, can I just be honest? I want something to boast in. And there are times where my, I find myself fretting and frustrated because I feel like I have nothing to boast in, and, and God is just trying to remind me, Ben, don't boast in anything but the cross. I encourage you to spend some time reading through Romans 12. Let me just whet your appetite with the first verse there. It says this, I appeal to you, brothers, that therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Just, just read through that. We're a living sacrifice, and we're called to die continually. And then I encourage you, like, ask the Lord, what do you need to die for, to? What do you need to die to? What is overtaking? Maybe there's some preferences in your life that you're just not willing to give up and God's calling you to. Maybe there's some comforts that you just, you just can't let go of. Some entertainment that you know the Lord is saying, Ben, or whatever your name is, hand it over. And then I encourage you, invite others to pray with, alongside with you. Like, we need the help. What's Hidden in the darkness often stays in the darkness until we bring it out and expose it. So I encourage you to have other brothers and sisters that speak to you. Let me invite you to stand. I'm going to pray and then we're going to close in a song here.